BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirshner. In today's long-form podcast, Glenn talks about whether a criminal president should be above the law while in office and whether New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg will be the first person to indict Donald Trump for the crimes he committed there. Here's Glenn. I am happy to be with you again for our Justice Matters weekend edition where we get to air things out a bit. As always, we will start with a brief legal recap. We will move on to some issue regarding reform, reforming something in our government that we know is broken, and we'll finish up with my attempt to answer a couple of your questions. You were good enough to send me some questions to my website, glennkirshner.com, and so I'm going to try to answer one or two, and my answer will involve a, a personal story about raising my kids, my five daughters and one son. So I hope you'll stay with me for that. But I want to start with the biggest legal stories of the week. And friends, it sure feels like justice is snowballing. That snowball is gaining mass. It's gaining speed. It's gaining momentum as it barrels toward Donald Trump. Finally, finally, maybe being indicted for just some of his many crimes. So the recap this week will largely involve a discussion of the two district attorneys and the two jurisdictions that at this point seem like they're on the verge of indicting Donald Trump. And of course, I'm talking about Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fawny Willis and New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg. And after we're done our legal recap, we will then move on to, I guess, what we'll call the B block. That is some TV lingo that I learned, courtesy of being a legal analyst on MSNBC, getting to run my mouth on TV, as I say, which I still find very humbling and gratifying that I even get to have a, a tiny voice in the national dialogue regarding legal issues of the day. So. The B block will be about reform, right? Taking on something in our government that's broken and talking about common sense, real world, achievable reform. And today's B block discussion about reform can be summed up in a single word, accountability. And specifically, I wanna discuss the concept of accountability as it applies to high government officials, and even more specifically, let's not mince words, as it applies to a criminal former president of the United States. We're gonna take on the often heard refrain, no one is above the law, and we will put the lie to that refrain. 
The reason I can definitively say it's a lie is because y'all might have heard of this little thing called the OLC memo. And as far as I'm concerned, OLC is a four-letter word. Okay, it's really a three-letter abbreviation that stands for Office of Legal Counsel. And the Office of Legal Counsel is a unit within the Department of Justice where attorneys think deep thoughts and do lots of research and analysis and render legal opinions about what is and is not legal, what is and is not constitutional. And we're going to talk about the OLC memo, which in real terms is a memo proclaiming that a criminal president of the United States is above the law, at least while in office. That's right, friends. The geniuses at the Office of Legal Counsel have rendered an opinion that you cannot indict a sitting criminal president. Now, I would promise you, friends, that I'll keep the snark to a minimum, but it's probably a promise I can't keep, so I won't make that promise. Because announcing a policy or an opinion or an aspiration that a sitting criminal president is above the law is the stuff of banana republics. Because there's no statute, there's no law on the books, there's no provision in the Constitution, there's no Supreme Court precedent, indeed, there is no appellate court precedent of any kind that says you can't indict a sitting criminal president. But the deep thinkers at OLC have proclaimed that that shall be the law of the land, even though it's not a law. It's a memo, and it's a memo that is the stuff of banana republics. I have long said, we don't become a banana republic by prosecuting a criminal president. We become a banana republic by refusing to prosecute a criminal president. And here we stand, friends, at that fork in the road as we await the first indictment of a criminal former president of the United States. So we will take on that most damaging of opinions, the OLC memo saying a criminal president is above the law. But let's start with this week's legal recap. So friends, this is going to be a Donald Trump indictment-centric legal recap discussion because it looks like history is about to be made. Why do I say that? Well, it sure looks like Donald Trump is virtually on the eve of being indicted. I know, I know, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for what seems like an eternity, for just a little bit of accountability. Right, just a little bit of justice to come for Donald Trump. But given the developments in both New York and Georgia, it really is hard to conceive of Donald Trump not being indicted by one or frankly both of those jurisdictions. So let's start up north and let's finish down south. We'll start with the New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg and his investigation of Donald Trump because there is every indication that Alvin Bragg is at the end stage of his grand jury investigation, at least with respect to some of Donald Trump's crimes. Specifically, the hush money payments 
that Donald Trump, together with Michael Cohen, his former lawyer and fixer, made to porn star Stormy Daniels to keep her quiet, to prevent her from disclosing her affair with Trump, which would have been deeply damaging information back in 2016 when Trump was running for president. Michael Cohen and Donald Trump together committed crimes in their determination to bury that information, keeping it from the American voters in a very real sense, robbing us of the full value of our vote. And it looks like, it looks like those crimes have finally come home to roost. And the biggest development of the week was Michael Cohen testifying not once, but twice before the New York grand jury. The other big development was that Alvin Bragg asked Donald Trump, invited Donald Trump through his lawyers to appear before the grand jury and explain how it's all some big misunderstanding. He didn't really commit any crimes. The prosecutors have it all wrong. Alvin Bragg gave Donald Trump that opportunity. Shockingly, Donald Trump declined the invitation, which is probably one of the few smart things Trump has done recently because look, if Donald Trump is placed under oath and his lips are moving, he is likely committing perjury. So he refused to appear. He refused to offer any defense to the grand jury, you know, urging them to conclude he committed no crimes, he shouldn't be indicted. But Michael Cohen has testified twice and some people say, well, Michael Cohen is damaged goods. He's a problematic witness, right? You can't rely on Michael Cohen's word as a witness against Donald Trump because Michael Cohen committed crimes. In fact, he lied in the past to Congress. Yes, but he is who Donald Trump selected as his co-conspirator, which actually makes him the perfect person to testify against Donald Trump about the crimes he committed together with Donald Trump for the benefit of Donald Trump and at the direction of Donald Trump. This is stock and trade for prosecutors using co-conspirators against their fellow co-conspirators and friends. Michael Cohen has the receipts. He has the reimbursement checks. Donald Trump was writing to him out of the Oval Office after Trump was elected president. Yes, this was an ongoing crime. Donald Trump was reimbursing Michael Cohen for the $130,000 hush money payment Cohen made out of his own pocket for which Trump reimbursed him. And then Trump fraudulently took those reimbursement payments as business deductions on his tax returns, claiming they were legal fees. But you know what, friends? I will believe Donald Trump is being indicted when I'm holding a hard copy of a New York indictment in my hand, reading it for myself. That's the moment at which I will believe Donald Trump has been indicted. Coming up next, jurors in the Georgia Special Grand Jury are now giving out clues to how widespread the criminal investigation of Donald Trump's election tampering actually is. This is Justice Matters. 
Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. A handful of the special grand jurors investigating interference in Georgia's 2020 elections are now giving out indications to what is ahead for Donald Trump and his co-conspirators. Here's Glenn. Okay, let's now head down south to Georgia. So down in Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis seems to be in the final stages of her grand jury investigation of Donald Trump's Georgia state election crimes. Now, first, let's state the obvious. Several weeks ago, D.A. Willis announced that her charging decisions were imminent, and yet imminent now seems to be a few weeks in our rearview mirror. That's not a criticism, that's just an observation. You know, District Attorney Willis may very well have made her charging decisions, and now she is fine-tuning what may very well be a massive conspiracy indictment. Not only that, she may be negotiating with people that she is on the verge of indicting to see if they would rather plead guilty, accept responsibility for their crimes, come on board, try to make right what they did that was so wrong previously and testify truthfully against their co-conspirators. So she may have made her charging decisions already and now she's taking care of all of that cleanup work before she asks the grand jury to vote on and publicly disclose their indictments. And friends, that indictment is likely to be massive. Massive is not my word, friends. It's the word used by one of the grand jurors who spent eight months performing their civic duty, sitting on the grand jury, listening to a mountain of evidence about Donald Trump's crimes and the crimes of his corrupt associates. Because you see, five grand jurors sat for an extended conversation with a reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which by the way has been doing some terrific reporting on the Trump investigation in Georgia. If you read that article about how these five grand jurors that sat for the interview gave up eight months of their lives to do their civic duty in what is undoubtedly one of the most important criminal investigations in our nation's history, your opinion of the work of grand juries might be enhanced. It may even restore your faith in the grand jury process in the event you ever lost your faith in that process. The article relates the experience of five jurors and the interviews they gave were entirely appropriate, entirely lawful. They were allowed to talk about 
things that happened in the grand jury, with the exception of their internal deliberations. They were not permitted to talk about those, and they didn't. And these are the jurors who sat and saw 75 witnesses testify before them in that Georgia special grand jury. And the seriousness with which the grand jurors took their responsibilities was inspiring. You know, one said it was so incredibly important to us that we just wanted to get it right. And it wasn't easy. Some of those grand jurors said that at the end of each day, they would leave the grand jury, they would go sit in their car, and they would cry. They would cry because of what they saw inside that grand jury room. They saw evidence of how Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and others devastated the lives of election workers in Georgia, including Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, election workers who were just trying to help, just trying to you know, work to ensure free and fair and accurate and reliable election results. And Trump and Giuliani all but destroyed the lives of those two women, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. And one of the things I found so impactful was the way the article ended. One of the grand jurors in describing what was about to happen said, and I quote, it's gonna be massive it's gonna be massive. Yes, the grand juror said it twice. So I'm gonna go out on a limb and I'm gonna say the indictment or indictments we are about to see issued by the grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia are gonna be massive. Coming up next, Glenn discusses whether a sitting president should be held accountable if he breaks the law while in office. This is Justice Matters. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This week, Glenn's discussion of reform looks into the accountability factor of charging a sitting president with a crime while in office. Should we consider changing this rule? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, let's turn to today's topic on reform. Accountability. What does that word mean today? Is it a quaint notion? Is it an unfulfilled promise? Is it a stone-cold lie that we intentionally tell ourselves over and over again that no one is above the law? It's probably a little bit of all those things. And the way I see it, friends, we can continue to limp along, putting high government officials above the law. We can continue to decline to hold criminal presidents accountable, or we can try to prod into wakefulness the long dormant notion of accountability 
for high government officials, particularly a criminal president. You know, friends, it was about 50 years ago when President Gerald Ford pardoned a criminal president, Richard Nixon, for the crimes against the United States that he committed while in office. You know, it still knocks the justice wind out of me when I think back to how President Gerald Ford decided that Richard Nixon should not be held accountable for the crimes he committed while in office. And Ford made that decision for the good of the country, to help the country heal. Can I tell you, friends, as a career prosecutor, that always struck me as a cruel joke. You know, in my 30 years of prosecuting cases, dealing with victims, I never once told the victim, you know how I'm going to help you? You know how I'm going to help you heal? I'm going to help you heal by declining to prosecute the person who victimized you, who assaulted you, who abused you, who stole from you, who committed crimes against you. I'm going to help you heal by declining to prosecute your perpetrator. Friends, announcing that you're declining to prosecute somebody in the name of healing is a perversion of justice. So how about this time around, we try accountability. Now, we know that an indictment of Donald Trump is just the first step on the road to accountability, right? We know enormous challenges lie ahead. Trump's legal team, have you seen some of these characters? You know, I actually like the odds of a conviction more after seeing Trump's lawyers speak publicly. But Trump's legal team undoubtedly will wage a scorched earth defense. And while Trump's defense attorneys are waging legal battles in a court of law, we can fully expect that Trump's loyalists and lackeys and lapdogs and sycophants will be waging battles in the court of public opinion, and I'm sure they'll be deploying both facts and alternative facts. But no matter how difficult the struggle in the quest for justice, no matter how long it takes, no matter how ugly the battles get, charging somebody for their crimes, as opposed to refusing to charge somebody for their crimes, is the only way to achieve accountability. And you know, There's another likely consequence of what would be the precedent-setting indictment of a criminal former president of the United States, and that is it increases the odds that additional indictments will follow, and frankly, will follow in short order. You know, I have long maintained that no prosecutor wants to be the first to charge a former president with a crime, because First of all, that prosecutor and his or her team of prosecutors and investigators will attract, you know, white hot searing media attention from all over the world. You know, that's never fun. And there's something else we can't ignore. It is the sad reality of our times. Trump and many of his associates have unleashed a level of hate and violence that was once unthinkable, or at least unacceptable, right, in a civilized society. And yet Trump has proved 
repeatedly, including with his entreaties to his supporters like fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore, Trump has made violence in the quest to acquire or retain power, not just acceptable, but fashionable. You know, you only need to read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution article about how on the day traitorous former Army General Mike Flynn testified before the Georgia State Grand Jury, law enforcement authorities brought in bomb-sniffing dogs to make sure none of Flynn's ugly, unholy MAGA army had planted bombs in or around the Fulton County Courthouse. And the article relates that on the courthouse steps, there were sheriff's deputies and marshals carrying automatic weapons guarding the courthouse. So yes, the prospect of violence coming to jurisdictions and to the prosecution teams that pursue criminal charges against Trump cannot be ignored. Still, I firmly believe that once one jurisdiction indicts Donald Trump, others will soon follow. Why do I say this? Well, first of all, prosecutors are not monolithic, but I will say we tend to be a fairly competitive bunch. And importantly, district attorneys are elected. So Alvin Bragg will have to run for reelection if he chooses to. Fawny Willis will have to run for reelection if she chooses to. Now, granted, federal prosecutors are not elected. We're hired, right? I was hired by then United States Attorney for the District of Columbia, Eric Holder, and I will forever be grateful to Eric for taking a chance on this gutter kid from Jersey, giving me a shot at being a federal prosecutor. For that, I will be eternally grateful. But unlike district attorneys, local prosecutors, federal prosecutors are hired not elected, but still, I will say in a very real sense, we do represent the interests of the people of the United States of America. So I think we are still answerable to the American people, even if only through the attorney general who is hired and can be fired by the president of the United States. But really more directly, district attorneys are beholden to their constituents the ones who voted them into office. And here's the thing, friends. As soon as one jurisdiction indicts Donald Trump for the crimes he committed in that jurisdiction, other district attorneys, other elected prosecutors will sit up and take note and will say to themselves, well, Donald Trump did commit crimes in my jurisdictional backyard as well. Now, as a prosecutor, let me say, you don't make charging decisions based on what some other jurisdiction is doing or has done to the target of your investigation. But I do firmly believe that once the barrier is broken, once a criminal former president has been indicted for the first time, the second time, and the third time, will be much easier for other prosecutors who are investigating the crimes of Donald Trump. And once that legal barrier has been broken, once the maiden legal voyage has set sail, I believe that one of the most important takeaways will be 
that a president of the United States may never again rest comfortably in the belief that he or she can commit crimes with impunity. And that will be an important development for our republic. Indeed, it may turn out to be a democracy-saving development for our country. So let me finish up the accountability chat with this, friends. An indictment, you know, generally is not a celebratory affair, though let me hasten to add that there may be dancing in the streets, there may be corks popping all over the country, indeed all over the world when Donald Trump is finally indicted for at least some of his crimes. But generally speaking, an indictment is not a celebratory affair, it's just a necessary step on the road to justice. But the indictment of a former president of the United States for his crimes will send a powerful message. Right? Gone are the days that presidents are given carte blanche to commit crimes with impunity. And that historic development will move toward fulfilling what had begun to feel like a hollow promise, that no one is above the law. So hopefully, friends, an indictment of Donald Trump will prod that mantra into wakefulness and provide you know, some modicum of hope for a rebirth of accountability. Coming up next, Glenn answers listener questions about his personal life. This is Justice Matters. Glenn is now getting in listener mail, and in this new Q&A segment, he answers some personal questions about his career and his family. Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, let's move on to the final block of our chat today. I think it's the C block for those of you keeping score at home. So in this final block, I want to answer one of your questions. And as I said, if you have any questions you'd like to ask, please feel free to go to my website, glennkirshner.com. You can send me a message there, and I promise you I will read each and every message or question that comes in. And a number of you have asked questions since we sat down to chat last weekend about, among other things, my personal life. Um, I got some questions about my time as an Army JAG prosecutor, handling court-martial prosecutions and also criminal appeals. You know, I got to handle an espionage case that arose out of Desert Storm. I got to handle uh, capital murder cases, and uh, I will try in the future to answer some of the questions that you all have about my time as an Army JAG, six and a half years active duty, which I will forever treasure. It was, it was an honor and a privilege to serve in the U.S. Army. Some of you asked questions about my time as a federal prosecutor, not surprisingly, and someone asked me, you know, Glenn, what's it like raising five daughters and a son? So if you will just indulge me these last few minutes, I'm gonna get a little personal. I'm gonna share a personal story. And it's a story about what are probably the three most impactful words anyone has ever said to me. I know what comes to mind when you hear those three little words that are so important to people. I love you springs to mind. That's not where I'm going here. 
Those are important words, no doubt. So first of all, I raised five daughters. They're all grown now. And then later in life, I had the incredible good fortune of coming into a stepson who is also now grown. So I raised five daughters and one stepson. And anybody who knows kids, you know, probably has feelings along the lines of they are the greatest joy and at times the greatest challenge of your life. That's certainly true for me. And when I was raising my five daughters, my greatest joy was to watch them participate in activities. I don't know what it was, but watching my kids just sitting on a sideline, for example, watching them play sports or engage in dance recitals or music recitals was just kind of a highlight for me each and every week. Now, given that there were five of them, the evenings and the weekends in particular were pretty much consumed with getting the five girls where they needed to go, right? The various places they needed to be, often simultaneously it seemed, whether soccer practice, basketball practice, swim, dive, field hockey, piano, dance, violin lessons, voice lessons, and on and on and on. And, you know, the weekends in particular, when other folks are out, you know, playing golf or whatever folks choose to do to fill their weekends, you know, I really enjoyed filling my weekends with not only running the kids here, there, and everywhere, but just sitting on sidelines or in auditoriums watching them. It was just one of my life's great pleasures, and it was, needless to say, a wonderful diversion from my work as a homicide prosecutor at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So when my kids were young, I never went anywhere by myself, particularly on the weekends. If I had to run out and get gas for the car, if I had to go grocery shopping, run some errand, I would always take one or two or three or however many of the kids I could convince to come along for the ride. Yes, there was often a stop for a candy bar or an ice cream cone thrown in to sweeten the pot. And I rarely went anywhere by myself. And, and what I did is whoever was sitting in the front seat next to me at the time, I would just hold out my hand. They would take my hand, I guess whether they wanted to or not, they never declined. We'd hold hands for a minute or so and then we'd let go. And this just became routine. And for me, it felt like a nice way to let them know I love them, to remain connected to them, to remain close. So there was one day when my oldest daughter was 16 and the others were, let's see, when she was 16, the others were 14, 12, 10, 8, and 6. Kept us busy. So my then 16-year-old was in the front seat. I think it was just the two of us in the car. We were running out to do some errand or another. And even though she was 16, I held out my hand. She took it. We held hands for a minute. We let go. And then I said to her, Kit, that was my nickname for her, Kit, you're 16. And apparently you're still comfortable holding your old man's hand for a minute. Why do you think that is? And she took a moment. She thought about it. And then she said, 
what turned out to be three of the most memorable words, she said, I like you. I'll take I like you any day of the week. So yeah, they can be the greatest joy. Okay, friends, I think I'm going to stop there um, for obvious reasons. And friends, if you want to know where else you can find me, uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. On those platforms, I'm Glenn Kirshner 2, the number 2. And as I mentioned, my website, glennkirshner.com, you can send me a message, ask me a question there. And if you want to find me on YouTube, my YouTube channel is Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. And then finally, if you're interested in supporting our efforts, we are an all-volunteer effort here at Justice Matters. If you want to support our efforts, our mission, our content, feel free to go over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron, and if you do, I will send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. And finally, of course, this audio podcast, Justice Matters. We drop two to three episodes during the week, and then, of course, on the weekends, we get to sit down, air it out, and spend what I hope you feel like is some quality time together. So friends, thank you for joining me this weekend. As always, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with y'all again soon.